Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morrison. Joining me today, it's Drew Tavendale. Hello there. So following on from our last little look at some children's classics, which was, I guess you could say, a little bit Hollywood-focused. We're turning things mostly closer to home with a look at Watership Down and BFG, not only noted for their roots in British culture, but also somewhat darker sides. But we'll see how well they have held up and... We'll just start, I guess, by joining, jumping straight into the cheery adventures of Watership Down. Drew, yes. I don't really want you to recap this much, but if you could give me a, <laughs> maybe a glossed over light version, that'd be oh, cool. My recap's quite short, but it, it does really get to the meat of the matter. Um, <laughs> that pun intended. But, uh, Richard Adams' 1972 novel of rabbit life, Watership Down, was adapted into this 1978 animated film written, produced and directed by the American-born Brit Martin Rosen. It's the tale of Hazel, voiced by John Hurt, Fiverr, Richard Byers, and a small group of other rabbits who leave their warren in search of a new, safer place to live, after Fiverr's premonitions of coming doom. During their odyssey, they must contend with the myriad dangers to a rabbit's life, including foxes, cats, hawks, cars and, perhaps most surprisingly, rabbits. Narrowly escaping their warren after they are put under arrest for sedition and conspiracy to mutiny, they cross river and field in search of a new home, losing companions along the way, but meeting some new ones, including Zero Mostel's seagull, Kahar. Their biggest challenge arrives when they come into contact with the militaristic and restrictive warren run by the menacing General Windward, voiced by Harry Andrews. Hazel and his followers attempt to rescue some unhappy rabbits, an action which brings them into mortal combat with Woundwort and his lieutenants. True to the book, nature, red in tooth and claw, is the order of the day, and Watership Down wastes no time here as we see the bloodied, stylized but bloodied, bodies of multiple rabbits within the first minute or so, as the rabbit's creation myth is recounted. The animation then transitions to a much more realistic depiction of rabbits, with a convincing portrayal of the Lagomorph's lolloping gait and pleasant watercolour backgrounds often based on real locations in Hampshire, again like the book. Things, however, aren't a lot less bloody in this more realistic world. Indeed, they are a great deal bloodier, as the film doesn't shy away at all from depicting the injuries and deaths of its characters. I'm certain that some of this could be upsetting for the youngest viewers, despite its U certificate, and there is certainly a tone of menace and peril throughout. But the film doesn't revel in this, nor use it to shock. Rather, it's more of a, oh, this is the way things are approach. And it's rather appealing. Unlike our other film for this episode, Watership Down has teeth. Not an intended <laughs> pun, but that too. Um, and it's all the better for it. Yeah, I think we'd rather have skipped over a point there saying the rabbit's own origin myths. It's like, quite complicated. It's a system rabbits have got going here. More than you'd expect from just watching them bound around. It's, uh, <laughs> they, they were very vivid and deeply internal, uh, deeply realised political and mythological structure based that I would not necessarily be expecting to get in a kid's novel about uh, rabbits. But uh, yeah, I don't think I had seen Watership Down before. Um, so um, being, of course, roundly desensitised to everything, I, was, I think maybe there's an element of the violence being a bit stronger in people's minds than than there actually is, but there's still plenty of it. Yes. Uh, so it's still, it's still not exactly a, a happy, clappy story about rabbits bounding around. It's very bleak. Um, there's stranger moments of comedy that almost don't belong in here, like everything that uh, seagulls 
coming out with, uh, which is <laughs> zero Mostel's fantastic seagull. <laughs> yes, sounds like a eighties prog band. Uh, but there's, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's a really beautiful film, at least in terms of the visuals of it. Uh, even when it's been incredibly ugly, it's often been quite beautiful about doing it. Um, and the kind of more stylized parts of the creation myths and all that uh, have a very unique style. Apparently, it's a completely different style from the uh, from a different animator through to the rest of the film. I mean, obviously, you can see why it's been sort of so memorable to people because it is quite shocking. I especially, can't imagine how shocking this must be if you were sitting down to watch it when you're six years old and watching all these cute little anthropomorphic guys who you come to know and, if not love, at least be interested in like the rabbit shaman, because that's the thing. Um, and seeing them getting killed must be quite traumatic. It's not the sort of thing you'd expect. I mean, you wouldn't expect it to happen to Mickey Mouse, but it's, it's definitely happening here. Much as yes. you might want it to. Ooh, ah! Yeah, so it was a really interesting film, and I uh, quite enjoyed watching it. Gosh, would, would you recommend watching it, showing it to young kids? I don't know what the cut-off for this would be. Um, and like I said, it got yeah. a youth certificate, and that was a youth certificate in 1978 terms, so... Presumably the BBFC thought it was acceptable, and yeah, I don't know, I'd recommend it. I, I know I watched as a kid, um, like part of this theme of these films, it turns out you've watched far fewer of these as a kid than I did, I think, of the this podcast and the episode before, was it was kind of like formative films and films that were on a lot during our childhood to a greater or lesser degree. And I remember this being one of the films that was always on at Christmas and bank holidays and things. And mm. so I know I've seen it. And I had something you referred to. I had this idea of memory of it being yeah. really bloody, which is not, which is not to say that it's not bloody because <laughs> it is, um, but it's not, it doesn't linger. It's like a rabbit tears another rabbit's throat out and you see the bloody body, but it's not. Yeah, it's not a snuff film, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's not, it doesn't linger on that. It doesn't like show you in graphic detail or anything, but it's like you're in no doubt that the rabbit has died and and from the beginning outside of the mythology part where where the film begins uh, they meet a badger and they're they're immediately talking about that badger's just recently killed I can see the blood in his teeth you know they're not shying away from the grisly detail of the life of small mammals but yes I remember it being much bloodier than it was and it's not quite but what I do remember what loomed large in my mind for my whole life since then I never thought of Rudd Down very clear mental image of General Woundwater. Mm. And so that, it's certainly at a young age, must have had a strong impact to me because I've never forgotten that animal. It was exactly how it looked. And actually watching now, he's not quite as big a threat in the film as it feels like he was in my mind. Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced what my point is here. <laughs> Just, um, I guess you were asking whether I'd recommend I think so. I think there's value to be had in watching... Oh, realistic is mm. a difficult word to use around some watercolour rabbits, but... Um, Something that portrays the circle of life! Yes, um, <laughs> in a much better way than Disney's ever managed, certainly, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think there is value to be had in children being scared, you know, and it's... Uh, the original, as people know us and talk about it a lot, but like the original versions of Grimm's fairy tales, they were morality tales, and they're also a lot more gruesome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, children. Well, there wasn't even much of a childhood back then. That's some childhood in that way came a great deal later after the industrial yeah. revolution and things. But it was those tales were very much more raw, mm-hmm. bloody, and then it's the Victorians that defanged them with their really perverted sense of morality. Yeah, 
Um, it's entirely all right to give my entire family syphilis because I've been going around sleeping with every prostitute that I can find and uh, put their lives in danger that way. But no naughty words and let's not have um, people getting murdered in the fairy tales, you know? <laughs> Strange lot of the Victorians. Uh, so I guess this is a bit more of your the tone of a, a genuine grim fairy tale of, you know, there's actual blood in here. Yeah. And I, I like that. I like that there's some... Because it's not... We're not talking horror stories. It's not that. It's just there is a bit of the real world in there and I think there's benefit to kids having a wee bit of scariness when they're mm-hmm. young I'm talking like torture or trauma or anything, you know <laughs> yeah. but it's got to, you got to how do you learn to cope with emotions of fear and worry and stuff unless you start experiencing them yeah yeah interestingly morality plays because I've had of one criticism about Watership Down is that it doesn't really seem to have much of a message in there um, I was just reading a little Bit of an interview with, uh, I think so, Richard Adams's daughters who were saying that he, he apparently he was insistent that this is just a tale about rabbits and there's no particular deeper meaning into it, despite the fact that it's got so many weird political allegories and things going on in it. So I'm not quite sure I believe that, but it, yeah. I would say that it doesn't really seem to settle on any one thing in particular other than that bad things are bad, which is, is nice, but <laughs> maybe not the deepest message. But it's not like it's not like we're talking about Animal Farm here. Uh, no, there, there's no, nothing quite not. so clear cut in terms of a, any sort of take-home message from it, but still doesn't need to be. But uh, perhaps that yeah, would uh, I mean- be a bit of a kick. I don't know. Yeah, I get this. it's sort of like, it's a tale and it happens without a particularly strong message. But and so I, I can believe Richard Adams a lot more when he says there is no like political allegory or anything in here. It's just a tale of some rabbits, much more than I can believe with Tolkien. Mm. And Tolkien swore blue that like in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, there is no like message. There is no like, anti-industrial message or anything yeah. like that in our environment. <laughs> yeah, there quite clearly is. I know authors who use subtext in their covers. <laughs> what do you call an author who uses it constantly but never actually admits that it's like some sort of double coward or something? Yeah. Um, so I buy more for this. Uh, I mean, if there's anything, it's the sort of thing that's in a lot of animal-based stuff in particular, which is kind of man's damage to nature. But even then, this film kind of goes out of its way to not evade that, but to sort of play that down because the rab- one rabbit at one point says... Uh, man, man hates us. Um, hmm. And the other rabbit says, no, basically they're indifferent to us. Yeah. Like, we just happen to be where they want you to go. Yes. <laughs> um, which is probably accurate, but it's still, it's like, I suppose at that point, um, and that's a, that's a quite graphic section of the film too. And you're seeing the, the, the description of all the holes being blocked with bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And then the kind of slightly nightmarish style the animation takes at that point. Hmm. Holly has recounted what had happened in the the warrant that they left. If only they had the uh, terrorist raccoons from Pompoko to fight their corner, it would have been a much <laughs> different story. But I know it ended in much the same way. Yeah, I suppose. Um, they just put up more of a fight to begin <laughs> with. But that's a film also full of lots of deaths, Scott. So yes, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Yes, yeah, so it's not. Yeah, it's not strong. I, I finally worked my way around to responding to your point which is that yeah there's not a there's not a strong message in there so and i think maybe a wee bit of one or moral or something might be good but it's i guess it's mm-hmm. more um, just people uh, the characters keep their promises they care for each other that sort of thing kind of wholesome stuff yes without any sort of overarching 
um, moral to it or anything like that. But that's fine. Yeah, and it's certainly a, a very entertaining tale. Bloody and upsetting at points, but it's uh, it's still an entertaining tale, and perhaps that's enough. Yes, perhaps it is. So, let's move on to another book from just a decade later. Also uh, written by a British author, and one that, in fact, of that author's work was my favourite as a child. So, was it done justice, Scott? We've covered this song before, so I know the answer. But <laughs> <laughs> Don't spoil it for the kiddies. Uh, yes, we're talking, of course, about the big friendly giant, in which Ruby Barnhill's 10-year-old orphan Sophie doesn't seem all that happy living in the London orphanage that she finds herself in. But not to worry, she shouldn't seize and is subsequently snatched by a giant and taken far away. Hooray! The giant, who we shall soon know as Mark Rylance's big friendly giant, couldn't have her blabbing about the existence of one giant. She blabbed! Let alone the many giants that live in giant country. There we find rather less friendly giants, led by Flesh Lump Eater, who we can assume eats lumps of flesh. Bone Cruncher, who we can assume crunches bones. Child Chewer, who we can assume chews children. And Meat Dripper, who I don't want to assume anything about. It's just too disgusting. <laughs> These clowns are all much bigger and stronger than the BFG, and they bully him. The BFG hides Sarah to save her from anything, but all this palaver does not dissuade him from continuing his work, the work that Sarah observed him doing, harvesting dreams from a weird dream tree and inserting them into sleeping children. Creepy. Of course, all this comes to a head when Flesh Lumpeter and co. get wind of Sophie's presence and go ham on the BFG's workshop, leading to a moment of existential despair that can only be solved by a direct appeal to Queen Elizabeth II, God preserve her, and her corgis, her, her corgis, God preserve them, who calls on the army to mop it all up in a much less violent way than would perhaps be imagined. Uh, so this was a bit of a flop commercially, and I'm sure going up against Finding Dory did it no favours in that department, but there's also something deeply English about this film that makes me wonder if it would ever have had international legs. The BFG himself's all about West Country mumblecore, and that isn't really ameliorated when you realise that most of what he's saying is a pretty loose interpretation of English anyway. For a film whose, I imagine, prime audience just want to keep the kids quiet for a few hours, this may be a bit of a barrier, outside of the West Country at least. Anyway, I can't really comment on what this is like as an adaptation, it's been a long time since I've read this, but this does feel unusually low stakes for most of the film. The giants, I seem to recall, are supposed to be terrifying, that's why a friendly one would be so unusual. Here they're just Berks. Big, dumb, lumbering Berks that our ten-year-old hero could outwit very easily. Hell, a paper bag could outwit quite easily, so there's no real sense even fleeting of danger to give this film any sort of edge at all. Imagination has got in spades, although there's a few trips to the Uncanny Valley with the Rylance mocap digital performance thing in the BFG. It still mostly works, and I don't think I can fault any production design at all. It looks great, has great score, solid performances, and it's entertaining enough, I suppose, but it just doesn't really connect with anything deeper than that. There's perhaps that one scene where the BFG is regretting something in his past that gets a bit closer to uncovering some real emotion and is about the only scene where you'd peg this as a Spielberg film, but the rest is a parade of stuff that happens and then is over without making all that much of a lasting impact. Maybe it's just me, but this didn't connect with any of the childlike wonder or imagination I'd hoped for, given the pedigree behind the film. It's a perfectly acceptable way to spend a couple of hours, but doesn't reach anything more than that, which, to be fair, is enough. Uh, But this isn't another E.T. Hell, it's not even another Tintin, for that matter. Perhaps that unfairly holds Spielberg to a higher standard than other directors? Perhaps, but anyway, the end result's the same. The BFG is good, but hmm, not great. Yes, uh, well, first of all, I, I wish to disagree with you when you say it's perfectly acceptable. It is not. <laughs> uh, 
as I said, the, the BFG is my favourite Roald Dahl book. I read it a lot as a kid. I'm really familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I've not read it in years. I actually intended to try reading in Spanish before this, just before I watched this film, but um, a complete lack of sleep has knocked that out of the park. But um, mm-hmm. no, wait, knocking things out of the park is a good thing. <laughs> knocked on the head. That's the one I'm looking for. My brain's just not working. Just it's now. definitely headed out of the park. Yes. <laughs> like a womble. <laughs> Underground? Well, Overground? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did talk about this film um, in a, an intermission episode right back near where we started, I think. Mm. And so, that, so I watched in the cinema at that point. That's the first time I watched it since. It's still massively underwhelming. I think I didn't dislike as much this time around simply because I knew what to expect. Right. I remember thinking the last time that Ruby Barnhill was terrible in this. She Well, she's still terrible, but again, not shocked by how bad she is. I sort of expected it, so... I guess it was steeled for it. It's just, the big problem I have with it is that it seems that the screenwriters and Steven Spielberg have missed the point of the book entirely. You talked about the, the giants there and the sort of, they just seem like berks. You know, yeah. not they're not a threat. And in the book, they're absolutely a threat. Mm. And that's the point. I mean, there's a real sort of mean and sometimes even ghoulish streak in Dahl's novels. I suspect there's a large part of why they're so popular. Yeah. I mean, part of it's kind of slightly a moralising thing, I think, with like the, the horrible bratty kids in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory having horrendous things happening to them. Yes, who are hung up by their own irony threads, yes. Yes. Um, and there is that, but that sort of... Dal, if you read Dal, he, he clearly delights in that stuff, but in, like transmits that in a way that like, people reading it enjoy too, and I always did. And so when you have... The, just the names of the giants alone. They said Flesh Lampeter and Blood Bottler and Child Chewer. They're great. They're sort of really gruesome names and the the, the book hammers on them. Mm-hmm. And it, the book talks about how, I mean, there's lots of wordplay in it because Dal's big, been big in wordplay as well, but kind of fun, gruesome stuff too. Yeah. Which, um, so things like, um, the, the one I always remember very clearly is that Blood Bottler was off to Baghdad to Baghdad mum and the babies. <laughs> right? So it's horrific because it's this person eating children. But also funny. <laughs> it's a really black way, um, really dark way. And then you have things too. And then, because there's huge patches of the book where the BFGs relating to Sophie, everything that the giants say about human beings and about how when they go to, when it's a hot day, they'll go and eat people from Chile to cool them down. Mm-hmm. And that people from Labrador <laughs> taste like dogs. <laughs> and that Mexicans are spicy and things like that. It's like, it's just glorying in this kind of gruesomeness. Mm-hmm. That is entirely absent in the film. Yeah. It's like, oh, the humans, that's inconvenient, maybe. <laughs> and so that's, that's the biggest problem. Because absolutely in opposition to Watership Down, this film has no teeth. Mm-hmm. The closest in the book that Sophie comes to real danger is, and I don't know why they, they changed this. They kept it almost the same, but changed it a bit. I'm a different giant, but the blood bottler comes into the cave. Again, so I, I remember all this from childhood. I don't even have to read the book again. It just made such an impression on me. The blood bottler comes into the cave, picks up the snozcomber because he smells something in the cave and the, the blood the BFG saying, oh no, it's just it's this thing I eat, taste it. She ends up in the blood bottler's mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and only, it's only saved because the thing's so disgusting, he spits it out against the wall, so she's covered in slime. she almost gets eaten. Yeah. So they 
almost get to that point in this film, but then do it slightly differently. Why? Yeah. <laughs> so apart from that, there's never any real danger to anybody. And this like the giants are almost background things. Uh, yeah, whereas- well, I always thought that was weird in this because it it hurts the narrative as well because the whole last third of it is trying to come up with a plan to get rid of these giants who are supposedly going about capturing kids and eating them. But if you miss, like, one or two lines of dialogue, you wouldn't know that they're actually doing anything to kids at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's weird things added in for no reason, like, the giants are afraid of water. (laughs) But again, in the book, they they live in some sort of... In the kind of, like, Neverland way, you have to, like, take a left turn at morning (laughs) or something to get to the land of the giants. And... So this described that the, the BFG because he runs so quickly, like runs over water at some point to get. So the other giants must do it too. Yes. <laughs> so where are they suggesting this? Where they live is because it's not. Oh, it's so strange. And again, really weird decisions all throughout this film. So yeah, they relegate the giants to the background, given the, despite the fact they're the point. Yes. <laughs> I, I have a lot to say on this show. I'm going to pick it to death uh, again because it's one of my favourite childhood books. <laughs> but yeah, they relegate the fact that the giants eat people to almost like an annoying character trait or like they pick their nose and eat it or something it's like it's maybe a bit more severe than that yeah. Stephen. Uh, um, really bizarre changes i don't understand uh, like okay but I, I know it's an adaptation and for different reasons you change things because a book and a film are different mediums for instance one bit i think works quite well visually is the land of the dreams in the book, that's basically it's basically a land that's pure mist hmm. and the dreams float about and the BFG's incredibly acute hearing allows them to track them and catch them. That's not going to fly on screen. Whereas in the book, what they have is like the the dreams are these kind of bright, whizzing lights and it looks really attractive on screen. It's really colourful hmm. and the, the giants kind of running about this country trying to catch them. It's like, okay, that change I understand. That makes sense. You're making a film. It has to be a visual thing. That works really well. In, but the, for instance, the Land of the Giants, um, I can't remember exactly the description, but I think it's like, is it yellowy skies? like yellow sand and blue rock, and it's really barren and empty um, and a hot place that they just lie scantily clad all day, sleeping all day. They've sort of kept this not wearing much, but put them in a cold place. It looks like an, an island off of Ireland or Scotland. Yeah. But it looks real. It looks like a place. Yeah. Whereas in the book, it's like it's quite clear. It doesn't look like anything on Earth. If it looks like anything, it's maybe the centre of Australia. <laughs> yeah. But that's it. Nothing like this. And then, why? Why make it set in somewhere that looks so like a real place? That's really odd. Yeah. And again, particularly strange by the end when they pick them up these these buns and then drop them off on apparently another island that is uh, pretty much identical looking to it. Exactly. Very, like very weird. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, just all, it's surrounded by water, but yeah, but where, wasn't that where they already were? Because again, if they got to Britain, because apparently they're all eating children in Britain, but if they got to Britain, then they must. I, Britain, it's an <laughs> island, have you not? not just, uh, the film is just full of these really odd choices that I do not understand. Like, when is this set? Hmm. This is a 1982 book, set in 1982. You know, and all the helicopters. <laughs> but apparently it's set in a Victorian orphanage, which is also maybe the 1950s, given the cars that are in London yeah. and the weirdly American-style dustbins and things. What? <laughs> it's such a confused film. 
I don't know what is going on with it. It's really, really strange. So, yeah, they've missed, they've missed the point so much. Um, and even the main character, I, I was quite disappointed with Mark Rylance in this. The CGI and the motion capture, it never looks like it fits quite right. So it's not the best stuff. But it's more just the way they've portrayed the character. It's just like your West Country mumblecore. It, it's a strange thing because it's kind of almost painfully slow. I don't know why the BFG speaks quite so slowly, but it's vaguely annoying. But <laughs> that may just be that I don't like the way they've taken that. That's, that is kind of ob- uh, subjective. That's okay. But one of the really big things in the BFG, and it's why just like, they don't, there seems to be a huge disconnect between what the story's about and how they're presented, and they've, they've kind of missed the point of everything. <laughs> the BFG's big feature is his hearing, right? And the reason he caught Sophie was because he heard her from across the street, heard her heart pounding because she'd looked out of the window and saw him. They mention it in the book, but it's more, it feels more like a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's like, I got you because I, I hear all the dreams of the world and stuff, and I hear the whispers, and, I, and the, I hear the whispers of beetles and ladybirds and stuff. But no, no, no. In the book, it's not a metaphor. He hears them. Dal goes to great pains to explain just how incredibly acute the BFG's hearing is. Yeah. He hears people breathing. He hears, that's how he catches the the dreams. And then there's like the, what would actually be a really good visual thing in the film, because it would have looked so out of the ordinary, is that he's basically got swivelable ears. <laughs> At one point, Sophie's riding in his ear, because he turns it so it's like 90 degrees to the horizontal, 90 degrees to the ground. Oh no. In line with the ground. If it's not degrees down, that would be normal, should fall out. <laughs> <laughs> Too tired for angles tonight. Uh, and so that would actually, because it would just looks so unlike any person you'd ever seen. <laughs> you can make his ears horizontal, okay. And it's a really big part of the character, and it's why his ears are so large, because his hearing's so acute. And it's his advantage against the, the other giants in this, because he can hear them coming. No, it's just dispatching like the, the thing's relegated basically to a metaphor. Hmm. But in tandem with that, in tandem with that, his incredible hearing, and the fact that what he does for, I don't think you could call it a hobby. In the film he calls it his job, but I guess it's like, it's how he spends his existence. Because if giants don't die and they just pop into existence, um, he's got to fill his time, right? <laughs> yeah. He says, right, I'll give nice dreams to the kids of the world. All these other horrible giants are eating them. You know what? I'll give them nice dreams. So that's good. And that means he he's a, basically a master of disguise. And you see some of that in the film, like he can... Like melt into the shadows and kind of make them look like the shape of a tree or something so people don't notice them. Mm-hmm. And then some brain-dead person in charge of the Foley, which maybe Steven Spielberg was directing it, said, well, this incredible master of disguise who hides everywhere and sneaks about at night, what we should do is have the th- the, th- the Foley for all of his footsteps sound like the footfalls of doom. <laughs> thud, 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 thud. It's driving me crazy. He is sneaking through the middle of London and apparently sneaking past people who can't see him and the Foley's going thud, thud, thud for every footstep. <laughs> it's moronic. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's the best word I can think of to describe it. It's just so idiotic because it makes no sense. This character's sneaking around but um, stomping in a way that you think is the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm getting angry about this film the more I think about it now. It's, it bothers me because it's just missed the point so much. It's... Ah... Uh, yeah, it, it's strange. The The giants aren't the threat they should be. They're just like clumsy idiots as opposed yeah. to some sort of terrible, mean people. And there's also a bit of a disconnect too between at some point they're basically 
brain dead simpletons, a bit like Hagrid's brother in the Harry Potter films, uh, but then also cunning enough to know what the BFG's up to and to follow and to and things like that. And also, they're apparently cunning enough to sneak around and have spent hundreds of years eating humans and not being caught. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird. It, it's, there's no cohesiveness to the f- film at all. Uh, okay, I've probably said <laughs> enough now. That, that's almost bad. It's a bad <laughs> film that misses the point of the book. Yeah, so you convinced me. I don't like it anymore. <laughs> I wasn't particularly fond of it in the first instance, but yeah, I can see it's a, clearly making a lot of weird decisions with a, a film. I'm not quite sure why. Is it, Would that just be to try and give it a wider audience? A, what would be? What is the point of that? Or do you think there is a point? I thought this, is this just a mistake? It's probably just a mistake, I would think. Um, Spielberg's not perfect, and maybe this just uh, was a bit of a misfire on his behalf. Maybe I'm thinking, like, trying to think about Steven Spielberg and, like, I don't know, the last while, his film... I can't remember the last time I saw a Steven Spielberg film I really liked. Oh, no, actually, no. I don't, it's Mark Vell as a bridge of spies, yeah. so I'll, I'll stop talking if that's actually not accurate, but... <laughs> I don't know. It, I felt a couple of times that as Steven Spielberg gets older, and I guess he's probably a grandfather now, and, I mean, he was never that into, like, the toothiness of things, yeah. back at things like E.T. and stuff, but, I don't know, it feels like he's lost his taste entirely for anything with an edge. Yeah. I suppose this is from the same man that not so long ago made Munich, which is a revenge film from a lot of murder. But I don't know, it just feels like he's he lost a wee bit of any desire to have an edge at all. Yeah, unless it's talking about Netflix, then he's all edgy. Edgy as you like, but... But I would say just, um, I'm going to go back to the book for a moment. You mentioned it felt like quite British in many ways, and I guess it is, and that's fine. But um, it was really, really popular in the United States. Right. So it wasn't just a British film. Um, in 2007, it was in a National Education Association poll. The BFG was listed among the top 100 books for children. Right. And then, as I see, this is just from Wikipedia. These are just statements of fact rather than opinion. This is known as. In 2012, it was ranked number 88 among all time children's novels in a survey published by School Library Journal in the US. So it's. it's and it's the fourth of four books of Dal among the top 100. So, yeah, mm-hmm. Dal had a big audience in the United States. So, any English countries, and again, and it's been translated into many, many languages as well. So, no, it's a pretty universally popular book. Yeah. So, there's no excuse for it. I was, just, I was looking for this number and I never found it. As of 2009, the novel has sold 37 million copies in Britain alone. It's a fair few. With more than one million <laughs> copies sold around the world every year. Yeah. So yeah, it was popular and it's still popular. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so again, really popular book that loved around the world and Steven Spielberg's messed it up. You blew it, Steve. You blew it. <sighs> Harumph. <laughs> That's a tragic note to end things on, but end things I suppose we must. So thanks very much for your attention. We'll be back with you soon enough with some more film chat. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us about this or any other issues you may have, you can do so on the Twitters at FudsOnFilm or email podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. Um, but until next time, you guys take care of yourself. I, I, as Scott Morris, will bid you adieu and possibly Drew Tavendale will do too. Yes, as Drew Tavendale, not as Scott Morris, I will also bid you adieu. 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 Ad